Also, I didn't ask, but how much swearing do you allow? Because we said asshole a lot, but I tried to not say the F word. I think I may have said it once. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're fine. Okay, but, okay, just making sure. Because this one, this one warrants a kill. Yeah. It fucked me up. (laughs) Yeah. Because I was going to say, I feel like we could both mutually just at the same time. It's like, what were you thinking as you finished this film? What the fuck did I just watch? (laughs) Okay. Um, like Jason is psychotic. <laughs> I did it for I, choosing this. I have. I'll talk about why I chose this movie. Yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, I'm excited si- to know. Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Ramirez, and welcome to season four, episode five of the Hit List podcast, a podcast where me and a guest cross off films from our watch list and discuss them. I'm joined today by YouTuber, actress, and makeup artist Clarice. Welcome, Clarice. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of re- this was a really fun time just watching these movies. So thanks so much. No problem. Uh, before we get started, I have two questions for you. Whenever you sit okay. down to watch a movie, do you choose something new or stick to your favorites? Oof. It depends on the kind of mood I'm in because if I have been stressed from, say, like a work day, I want to watch something I know, like I know well enough that I can quote that's going to make me laugh. So I might go for like a typical comedy, sometimes a trash comedy or like Shrek because Shrek. (laughs) Um, But if I'm really interested in watching something new, I tend to stick to um, newer contemporary films, usually ironically enough i watch like really tragic like messed up movies but because i'm like it's new i want to see it so yeah that's usually it it's one or the other i just have to make sure that i'm mentally stable or mentally instable (laughs) what are these newer tragic movies that you're talking about like give me an example well on christmas day my family and i decided to watch the last duel Starring Jodie Comer and Adam Driver and (laughs) Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And we watched it on Christmas Day. I haven't seen that, but I've heard a lot of stuff about it. So Yeah, like you you know what it's about, right? Yeah, Yeah, I know what it's about. (laughs) Yeah, perfect Christmas movie, right? (laughs) Ideal. Super ideal. Great for the family. So my second question for you is, what's your favorite scent? What's my favorite? What? Sense. Sense. Oh, like out of the five senses? No, no, no. Like, what's your favorite thing? To, like, perfume or favorite fragrance? Oh, scent. Scent. Gotcha. Gotcha. Ooh, it depends because thanks to the lovely uh, panorama that we're in right now, this pandemic, <laughs> um, it's actually caused me to have a weird smell distortion so Mm. my sense of smell has been distorted so there's only Mm. certain things that i'm able to smell that smell pleasant um so right now a scent a fragrance that i'm really liking is a scent by Giorgio armani called my way i really like that one it's a really nice fragrance you can buy it at i think like most department stores my way and the bottle's pink so (laughs) yeah it's called my way sounds like frank sinatra I know, that's what I think of. That's what I think of. And then I spray it while just hearing his music. Awesome. So let's get over to the films we'll be discussing today. So we'll be discussing two very different, very similar type of movies, if we we do say so ourselves. Mostly Clarice said this because I didn't notice this because I'm a man. We'll we'll talk about this later on. (laughs) Um, We'll discuss this soon enough. (laughs) we're, We're discussing Revolutionary Road and Perfect Blue. 
Revolutionary Road is a 2008 romantic drama film directed by Sam Mendes. The screenplay was written by Justin Haith, adapted from the 1961 novel of the same name by Richard Yates. The film follows Frank and April Wheeler, a mid-1950s couple struggling to cope with their personal problems and ensuing breakdown in their marriage. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet with Michael Shannon, Catherine Hahn, David Harbour, and Kathy Bates in supporting roles. This film was on Clarice's list. Clarice, why this film? So, <laughs> it's been years since I've wanted to see this film. Not particularly from like me thinking it was going to be like one of my favorites, but more because when I was in my last couple years of acting school, I had two dear friends of mine in my class who were doing a scene from this movie. And this was the kind of class where it essentially kind of doubled up as a secondary scene study based class um, towards the end of the year. And because of that, we were given the program that I went to was primarily focused on teaching actors film and television acting, so on camera acting, which is very, very different from the theater. Um, it's a lot to go into, but it's just quite different in terms of technique. So because of that, they prioritized giving us scenes instead of plays where most kind of theater major programs focus on giving you plays from Chekhov or Shakespeare. Here, they gave us movies that were contemporary so that we were working with contemporary writing. And two dear friends of mine did the opening scene for this movie in Revolutionary Road where they get out of the car and basically it erupts into them just yelling at each other in mid-traffic. And I just remember all of the work that I saw them go into to really try to communicate this struggle between this budding couple. And that really interested me. Plus, I love Kate Winslet and I love Leo DiCaprio. So the idea of them coming back together 10 years later was intriguing. I love Sam Mendes, who directed American Beauty, which is definitely one of my favorite films. So I was interested in seeing this kind of 10 years, I want to say like 10, 15 years later, essentially different take on a similar story. And that's why I was interested in watching it. Yeah. Um, for viewers who don't remember or just haven't gotten to connection yet, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet previously worked together in Titanic. This is like their first time working together since Titanic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just a little bit of background on that. So what did you think? Oof. I don't know what I think. There was a lot of stuff to think. <laughs> Goodness. No, the way to put it is, um, essentially, it's the kind of movie that I didn't think would impact me in the way that it did. Um, it resonated a lot with me in more ways than I expected because I knew that it was my going into it. I knew that this was a couple that essentially hates each other. I knew about the kind of eruptive fight scene they have at the end um, where Kate Winslet basically tells her husband that she hates him, that she doesn't love him. I knew that that scene was coming and I knew that there was going to be some talk about essentially an unwanted pregnancy. And that was really my whole thing about going into it. But when I saw this film, I didn't realize that this was gonna be the kind of story talking about two young um, people wanting to break out of the norm of 1950s America. And that's something that just me as an aspiring artist, uh, someone who came from a very small town, 
um, where many people, to no dismay, but many people tend to settle there. They they work, they get married, they have a couple kids and they stay there and they never leave. And that for me, just personally, was never really the kind of life that I wanted to have. So I related a lot to this notion, especially that the Leonardo DiCaprio character had about wanting to go off to Paris and travel and, and be alive again. And even with like the woman he loves to like feel alive, especially at the beginning where April was an aspiring actress. And then that like 10, 15 years later down the line, she's like doing some crap community theater <laughs> in just a small town. Like I understand it's my worst fear. Like, <laughs> like I relate heavily, especially when the pandemic, it kind of took a bit of a toll on my life. And I had to set back from the life that I had set up for myself and essentially have to move back in with my family. And many with that came that same societal pressure of, oh, you could just not do this anymore. You could just be like everyone else. And even though I still had these aspirations, and I still do, and I'm doing them now, but watching a movie like this, seeing two people just time and time again continue to get challenged by the norm of the times, where in the 1950s were in post-World War, so now it's nuclear family. It's life supposed to be good. It's life in the suburbs. It's American dream, white picket fence type stuff. And yet here's a story about two people that are just as equally unsatisfied with their life. And yet the world is telling them they should feel elated. And that just really connected with me because I felt that. I understand that, not to the full extent, but it was really nice to see a story that tackles that. But also, interestingly enough, showed me not so sympathetic characters. Yeah. And to kind of take that on with what I think, I think overall it's a really good observation, character analysis of what that time was like. And this idea of the suburbs, the American dream, and how that really looks realistically. Is that actually as satisfying as propaganda and media will have us believe? Is that really as fulfilling as society or media and stories might have us believe? Or is it more like this movie where there's nuance, you know? You can mm -hmm. still be empty, even with all of these material things that the American dream proposes. And that really stuck out to me about the movie. So I enjoyed it in that regard. Yeah, I definitely think the same way. And I want to I want to get something straight to the viewer, to the not to the viewer, to the listener real quick. I'm not as articulate as our guest, Jake Clarice. <laughs> Merit to my observations. Thank kind you. Of... <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. If, you. if you've been listening to this podcast a while, you know my observations are kind of surface level of some treading into the deep waters but i kind of felt the same way because um like you said like uh when the panorama happened <laughs> mm -hmm. um when the pandemic happened i i was on my way to like creating my first like short film not short first short film but like something that i really wanted to create and yeah, something a i was yeah basically and something that was like had action choreography something like that i was like really excited nice. to have and it all went downhill like it was done we couldn't oh. do anything with it um, and I don't even want to go back to that project because just going back to like that script is just like thinking about like how different, how, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say necessarily traumatized. I'm not sure if I'm traumatized by the whole thing, but I'm certainly jaded by the whole past two years. Uh, Absolutely. If, if, I, if I thought it was before, I'm definitely a lot more now. I have less faith in my fellow man than I had before. Mm. And 
I kind of, I don't want to say I kind of feel like Michael Shannon's character, um, because I haven't been lobotomized, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. he, he's very jaded. He's very honest about, he, he's an mm-hmm. asshole. He's an asshole. Uh, and I try not to be an asshole myself. I'm learning to not be one, but he yeah. calls it, he, he speaks his mind and calls people out on their behavior. And that's something mm-hmm. that I can relate to as well, because it's like people are acting like things are okay and things are not okay. Like, why are you, why are you being so delusional right now? Why are you choosing mm-hmm. to be delusional right now? Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's pretty much what I felt with this movie. I heavily related to Michael Shannon. Also, because I can't, the first role I saw him in was as General Zod in Man of Steel. Of course. Yeah. Ever since, ever <laughs> since he, I've seen him like knives out. Yes. Um, I don't know what else I've seen in him. I've also seen him in this. Every time, like, General Zod, what's up? <laughs> right? But then it's also Michael Shannon, and you realize how great of an actor he is, and you're like, all I knew you from, like, my introduction to you was General Zod? Yeah. In Man of Steel? <laughs> yeah, and he's, like, an actor. He's not, like, a star. He's an actor, so, like... No, he really is. Even to this day, like... He, I can see him and the other characters, but to be introduced to General Zod and to still see him as like that threatening presence that he was in that film, yeah, it just speaks to his just speaks to his ability, you know. Absolutely. But yeah, so we talked about this before we started recording. We're talking about Michael Shannon's character. So, who was your favorite character? So, as we mentioned, to give our listeners a little bit more context, I had told Jason before starting this that with that question of who's your favorite character, or perhaps who's your least favorite character. I equally disliked everyone in this movie. I did not have a single person that I was like, oh, I like you. Just because these are the type of characters that are just, they're not evil. They're also not good. They really are just complex people who make terrible decisions Mm. and are in a really, really tough spot. However... Being in a really tough spot and being traumatized does not give you the liberty to be an asshole. Right. <laughs> like, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't rebuke you of being a dick. And I found that a lot of these characters were still their own crudish, rude, mean people, but under a facade of sugarcoating. And yeah. that, for me, I don't know if any of our listeners are from the South, but I grew up in the South, and that's just triggering at this point. <laughs> if you show me a passive-aggressive, nice white lady, like, ooh, I'm a leave. That's, so, no, sorry, but uh, that's kind of what I fear about moving to L.A., because I know that's kind of how they are. They're very superficial, yeah. and it's inevitable. I had to go. But go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and the thing with that is, I love that there's a movie that gives me that experience, so that I don't have to feel that in my own life. Like, I'd mm. rather have that in the confines of a story that is set apart from me while it makes me feel things. But <laughs> but as far as the characters, I really did understand why they made the choices they made. However, if there was any character that I was to say that maybe was like, the one that's got my respect the most, like we were talking about, it's Michael Shannon's character. Yes. <laughs> and for me, the reason why, and I, I like what you said about, about understanding this idea of telling it like it is and trying to not be an asshole. But as far as with Michael Shannon's character, the thing that I liked is, one, yes, he tells it like it is. But I like what you said, Jason, about him being like, why are you being delusional? Why are you choosing 
to react this way. Mm-hmm. And as someone who myself struggles with mental illness and has been around many people who have some form of mental illness, it is really easy to just get glossed over by able-bodied people. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to, and it's not to like put it on them. Sometimes that's just what you gotta do. However, seeing that from an outside perspective of as much as he is very much an asshole, like I said, everyone in this show, (laughs) and not show, but everyone in this movie is a dick at some point. Some of them more than others. But Michael Shannon is unapologetic about it. And that's what I at least respect. Not that he's mean, not that he does these things maliciously, but it's that he's like, I know what I am, but all of you are choosing to ignore what I am. Right. You're choosing to play this fantasy of this suburban life that is all cushy and soft and warm. And all of you are just playing into this make-believe when you're all just as empty as I am. So he, for me, symbolizes this character of I'm evening the playing field here. Because they all, if you really look at it, Kathy Bates' character is a mother who doesn't know what to do with her son. Same with her father. So they just, they just, they're trying to play at this facade of like they're a happy family. And he keeps telling them like, but we're not. Stop lying. And then you have the Wheelers, Kate Winslet and Leo DiCaprio character, where they're the ones who are asked by Kathy Bates' character to come in and help her son. They're being seen as like, oh, we're the heroes of this story. We're here to help this man. When in reality, the truth is, none of you are any better than he is. Mm -hmm. And look at who he is and look at who you are. Guess what? None of you are that freaking special. We're all just the same level of disappointed. And that is a message that I feel like movies don't tend to hit on that I appreciated this movie tried to tackle. Is this like, you are not better than these people. So the people you see that are beneath you, you're right there too. So get yeah, over yourself. Definitely. I um, come from a working class family. Uh, very, mm-hmm. before my parents came here, they came from poor families, both of them. Uh, except yeah. for my, except for my mom, her grandfather was a very rich man. But her, mm-hmm. but my her mother, my grandmother, was one of his illegitimate children. So she didn't get mm-hmm. any of the benefits of him being rich. She was treated, yeah. casted aside. So she also grew up poor. And mm-hmm. I've seen, I've grew, I've grown up, just seeing people in positions of power treat people in positions of service, like not like people like in politics, but people in like service, like let's say. Yeah, of course. And janitors, you know, or people who fix pipes yeah. or whatever, plumbers. Yeah, your blue collar versus your white collar. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Of I've course. seen it. And they, they've they had this facade like white collar people are better than blue collar people. And yes. vice versa sometimes. Like, it, like you, you see it sometimes now where like some people are like condescending like, oh, you shouldn't have gone to college. Yeah. You should have gone to the trades. And I'm like, we're all fucked up. <laughs> we're yeah. all, like none of us are going to be yeah. a, in this current system, we're not okay. So don't exactly. try to be a dick about like where you are. Yeah, it, it's just like I don't know where where I started from. I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I guess people suck. Yes, but I I think I my my hunch is that from you mentioning this was kind of teetering back on that point of like we're all really equally a level of disappointed. Where, yeah, like, there's yeah. no one higher or lower. Especially when you look at things like what you're mentioning, which is economic class. 
and status that like mm -hmm. things that tell society or media tells us divides us yeah. where really the truth is we're all the same we're all made like, equal. we're all the same we're all made equal we hold and most of the mm? we hold these truths to be self-evident y'all exactly there we go america <laughs> <laughs> We're all equally disappointed with our lives. <laughs> exactly. And because the thing is, I feel like that level of, I talk about disappointment um, and emptiness just because that's what this movie felt like. Not mm -hmm. in a bad way, but in a sense of, that really, to me, that was my interpretation of what they were exploring here, is that emptiness. And they even say it. It's one mm. of my favorite things that Michael Shannon says to them, is he says something like, oh, the hopelessness. He's like, many people... Uh, grab onto, I think he said something like the hope, the hopelessness, or I might be switching it. I apologize mm. to listeners if I am switching it, but he's like, many people catch the hopelessness, but only you have caught the emptiness. Yeah. And it's very true. I'm from a similar background to you with very working class, blue collar families, very little education, like secondary education. And um, I come from an immigrant family. I myself am an immigrant from a different country. So had to come here, learn English, go to school, all these things that, again, the American dream has been so rationalized, especially for myself. And I'm not sure if you'll agree, but in Hispanic culture, especially like immigrant culture, I feel like this idea of coming to America, the land of opportunity, you really do get conditioned in a sense to aspire to this idea of what success looks like. And sometimes that success, especially in the 1950s, could look like the nuclear family. It mm -hmm. looks like a man working a job, a woman staying at home, taking care of the kids, and everyone's happy. And yet, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> we're not. Why is that? And I like what this movie explores with that, both from the male husband perspective and the female wife perspective. And I think it's interesting and kind of telling that they didn't show a lot of their children because you could tell that their children mean jack shit to them. <laughs> like, these people were not meant to be parents. Like, at all. You can tell. Yeah. Yeah, sure, they love their kids like anyone loves their kids. But come on. The part that made me, like, gasp, I was like, damn, that's like, kind of like true shit, though, was when Michael mm -hmm. Shannon's character said, you know, I'm, I'm happy, though, because at least I won't be that kid when she he's yes. mentioning <laughs> April's unwanted pregnancy. I was like, yo! Dude, when I tell you, when he said that, I like audibly left. Like I just, I was like, damn. Like, I can't, I can't think of the last time I've seen someone blow a burn that, like that deep in a movie. I she cannot couldn't think recover. Of the last time. She didn't recover. You from can't. That. That is a full fatality. Like her character didn't recover. That was actually No, like oh my. full fatality. She was dead in a couple of scenes later. It was Michael oh. Shannon's words, man. I'm telling you. Bruh. <laughs> like when he said at least I won't be that kid. Oh my god. Like and the thing is again, like respect to respect to the person for saying it. It's awful. But, like, respect, though. It's like that significant comeback that you just can't help but applaud, you know? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just the solidest of burns. It's like that comeback you come up with in the shower after the interaction. Like, oh, I should have said this! Oh! 
Yes, but he said it. But he said it. And it landed. And he said it in front of other people, too. Like, that's, like, that's the one that got me. Exactly. And it's the fact that he's the one being escorted out, all of this, but he lands the, like, final blow. Respect. Honestly. Absolutely. Yeah. Were there any characters for you, um, before we move forward, that stood out to you other than Michael Shannon? Or was there anything else that you really related to or liked that you saw within the, the Michael Shannon character in this movie? Um, a couple things. So, I forgot his name. He was the co-worker of um, Frank's... I think it's Frank, right? Oh, Frank's character, yeah. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was Frank's um, co-worker. Who sat the one next who sat him. next to him? Yeah. yeah, and then when they're having like their dinner or lunch, or whatever, with the other coworkers, mm-hmm. he's like, eh, "I probably wouldn't have worked out." He's like, "What'd you say?" Nah, it's none of my business. Like, yeah, exactly. It's none of your business. I was like, "Damn, okay, okay, ooh." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like that actor specifically, I've seen him in other stuff. He's a great actor because he he, is. he yeah. fits into every role, and I really, I guess it kind of speaks to how good he is. Is that. I always see him as a character, but not really as the actor, so I don't really remember his name. Uh, I'm yeah. really sorry. I'm really sorry if I, I don't remember yeah, your name. Yeah, I understand. Me too. That guy's a great character actor because I also, I feel bad. I don't know his name. Yeah. But he's done so many great things. Definitely. And what was the other one? Um, the woman that Frank's character slept with, like in the beginning, like who he cheated. Yes. Mm-hmm. I forgot her name, but yeah. I think I think she's Paula Dano's wife, like in real life. What? <laughs> I'm pretty Whoa. sure. Did not expect that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I thought she looked cute. What was about her character? Oh, yeah. I, she I just, I just she, she was, was cute. cute. She was very cute. She was cute. Did she know he was married? Because like I, I was checking. He wore his wedding ring the whole time, so yeah. I don't know. Because I was checking. I paused it once to get something, and I was like, no, he's he's wearing his wedding ring. Mm. Hmm. So I grew up um, Protestant evangelical, evangelical mm-hmm. Protestant, and so there okay. is some. Uh, I'm not really practicing. I haven't practiced in a while, mm-hmm. but there's some nice. things. Like, I have a similar background. <laughs> there are some things that nice. still carry over. Like I don't drink, yeah. I don't smoke, I don't do all that stuff. But mm-hmm. the one that still sticks out to me is like infidelity. That's like because they talk about yeah. it so much in the Bible, and yes. it's something mm-hmm. that's like. It hurts people, you know? It's like, yes. wow. And if she knew, I like her a lot less. Yes. If she knew. <laughs> yeah. If she didn't know and he was swinging for her, like, I, can, yeah. I can get that. I understand yeah, that. You can, but if plus she she's knew, very young. Yeah. Yes. If she knew, I'm like, oh, hell no. You, I know, you, right? He is married with kids, woman. With kids, though. Barely younger than you. <laughs> <laughs> She's old enough to babysit him. <laughs> She's just old enough to dial 911. <laughs> exactly. Just barely. Like, barely passes the line. They'd still ask for her parents if they showed up at the door. Definitely. And the other final thing I want to talk about is when they're at, like, they're going swing dancing. And mm-hmm. they're kind of disappointed that they're not going to Paris anymore. But they're trying to cheer each other up. And April is just not having it, you know. And then... I've been in that situation many times where, like, I'm at a party or I'm at, like, somewhere that's, like, very eventful. Everyone else is having fun, but I don't feel fine, you know? I don't yeah. – I can't – I don't – I didn't have – I don't have the strength to, like, put up a smile. Or if I do – Oh, gosh, yeah. If I do, it's just, like, you can't see that I'm faking? Like, have I gotten that as an actor? Because I'm not an actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, I felt that many times before where, like, I'm just very disappointed or – 
very sad and everyone else is around me is happy or they might be pretending to be happy. Maybe in a situation, mm-hmm. but still. Yeah, that's something I could heavily relate to. Just that feeling of everyone else around you looks happy, but you aren't. I heavily yes. relate to that. Yeah, and I think um, to kind of add to that, I feel like that's very telling as well. Of I, I like this question that you posed of, I know I'm not happy and everyone else looks like they're happy, but maybe they're also faking. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they're also trying to look like they're happy. Or is that something my projection? I, exactly. Or is it just me projecting from myself? But something I always think about with that is, say what you just said with, you're not willing to put up the effort to smile, which at some point we're all humans. Like there will come a point to that where there's, you don't need to smile. If you don't feel okay, don't smile. However, that can still look like a cry for help, a cry for need, compassion, help from someone. And the people around you may see it and choose not to do anything about it. Mm. And that I feel like is really the tragedy in a lot of human behavior, especially nowadays, where we see people every day that are silently screaming and we just walk by because we have our own things to deal with. And it's justified, and sometimes it's not, where if you see a person bleeding out, but you'd rather just get to your job on time, rather just continue smiling and faking it through, but the person next to you is bleeding. And I think with this as well, to put it back to, again, the semblance of that Michael Shannon character, this man clearly needs help. And his whole family, instead of, yes, they want to help him in their own way, not in the way that he really needs or that would really help him get better, but they would rather try to conceal what's wrong with him to keep up a front Mm -hmm. than really tackle what the problem is. And I think that's a root of where a lot of people can be at, especially with things like the pandemic, where we've been so inside our homes for so long that we don't want to go outside to experience nature. Not saying everyone, but I know that that's a true feeling. Many people are scared to go out and experience what life is, what being with humans are, because of our own fear, our own trauma experience that we had these past couple of years. And if we get to a point where our humanity is second to our convenience and our livelihood, we really have a problem because how will we ever be able to come back to connecting again? where humanity really is. It comes back to connection with people. And if you are over here in a party and no one is taking the shot to go and find you and try to make you smile, that's tragic, you know? Yeah. I was gonna say a joke there, but you're you're spitting. So I, I chose not to say it. <laughs> go for it now, we're laughing. <laughs> uh, you're saying talking about connection. How are we gonna connect each other? Well, we're doing it right now, for Zoom. exactly exactly and that's the thing there's so many ways to to evolve from that and i think there was something beautiful just to close off on the kind of pandemic tangent but i do think there is something beautiful to see now in modern day where people aspiring for connection when we had to be stuck in our homes and the kind of renaissance slowly that's happening with zoom with podcast with zoom parties and all these different things where people are saying we're all lonely 
How do we stop feeling lonely? <laughs> and what can we use to connect us back together? And I do think that's beautiful. And I think that is a promising step forward. It just, for me, um, when I see that kind of disconnection, detachment from other people, I always get a little concerned. I love it in stories because I think they give us great um, I think at times you can look at certain stories like this with Revolutionary Road as cautionary tales where mm. it's like, watch the tragedy happen so it doesn't happen to you. I love looking at stories that way and seeing what I can learn from them, even if it's something super twisted, especially like the movie we're about to talk about. <laughs> but I really enjoy looking at that through stories because I find that within every story, there's so much you can learn from it. There's so much you can take away from it to then reflect on for yourself to get better and to also better treat people. And if there's anything that this movie really showed me in this aspect is we're all legal here. Ain't no one. There's there's a phrase we have in my country. Um, I'll say it in Spanish so I'll translate it in English. But it'll be like, um, it says that sometimes people think um, que ellos son la última Coca-Cola en el desierto. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my mother tells me this all the time to talk about how much I blow up my own ego. But the translation is, sometimes people think that they are the last Coke bottle in the desert. Now, you hear a phrase like that. What does that make you think, Jason? The last Coke bottle in a desert. I mean, if I was in a desert, I'd want water, not a Coke bottle. Exactly. So what does Coke make you think? I think it'd be hydrated. Yeah, yeah. And so to kind of go on that, because of course, if you're in the desert, you want water. But Coke is that like, it's a soda. It's sugary. It's a little bit more prestige if you were to compare it to water. So mm -hmm. if you're taking yourself at the sense of egoism as a Coke bottle, but putting yourself in a desert, that is dry and all you want is a drink of water, you're trying to elevate yourself past the situation. <laughs> so she'll say that, and this is a, a big phrase we have in my country, we'll say that to anyone when they feel like they're just lifting, they're trying to, um, they're trying to put themselves above other people. Mm. It's like, you're over here thinking that you're the shit when you are just like all of us. It's not right. to say, it's not to insult somebody. It's to say, hey, check yourself. Like, check yourself and get humbled a little bit. Mm. Because you don't know what these other people are going through. And yeah. if anything, that's really what this movie, Revolutionary Road, uh, what I really got out of it. Because as much as, like I said, I did not like these people. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like these people. But I watched their story. I watched their story. And I can sympathize and try to understand their actions. Still have my thoughts about it, but I get it. I get where they're coming from. And I like that there is at least a story that tried to explore that. Um, and I think to some aspects, Sam Mendes did it effectively. I do think that American Beauty is a far better work that takes a similar subject matter, but does it more effectively. Um, but as far as your, your filmmaking, like your com composition, your costumes, costume design was great. I think they did execute what they were going for. It's just, you really have to look a bit deeper into a movie like this to get it. Cause I feel like as much as it tries to be, as much as it tries to have substance, it slightly kept it in the surface. Would you agree or would you disagree? Can you repeat the question one more time? 
Um, I feel like this movie tried to really go for substance, but ended up falling a little bit flat into just surface level. Oh, Would you yeah. agree with that? I, I heavily agree with that on that aspect. And I think I'm not sure if I said this during the recording or if I said this before the recording, but I was I kept waiting for this movie to hit, but it just didn't for me. Yes. And mm-hmm. they did all the surface level stuff great. The lighting, the cinematography, the costume design. They even had like actual physical newspapers. They designed and used mm-hmm. actual copy and paper from that era for that That's um, cool. for for that scene just for like the New York New York the Grand Central Station in New York. And yeah, he, to make it like, look even more realistic. Yeah, and they actually used Grand Central Station for one of the scenes just for like it's the, you, they're not even there long. They just use it for like one yeah. cut scene. And they did a lot of stuff great to make it look like it's in the 1950s, right? Yeah. On that level, they did a great job. Beyond that, like as far as like going deeper um, from the surface, I don't. Th- I think they could have done a better job. That yeah, and that's my opinion. And I am not the most articulate man, like I said, so I can't really discuss how or how why I feel this way. But I just felt this way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, you you really you don't have to be a scholar to know when a feeling or a message hits and doesn't. Yeah. We're all human, like we know. So I like that you said that. You're like, I can't really articulate why. I just know that I feel it. I think that's pretty darn accurate. <laughs> it's true. It's like, I was waiting for it to hit. And I'm still waiting for it to hit. <laughs> So as far as um, the story in itself, I guess to wrap it all up with the question that you had, what do you think in regards to this like 50s perfect suburb life? Do you think that ever really existed? Um, As people say sometimes with like the back in the good old days, do you think that was something that really ever truly existed or was it just kind of a figment of societal pressure that nowadays we think is what it was? So even today, we're romanticizing life 10 years ago. And that's something that I've, I've found that is pretty common across many people throughout time is that we romanticize the past only because mm-hmm. we remember the best parts. And we, we remember the, the worst parts as well because like there's some things that you need to remember to make sure it doesn't happen again. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people are doing that. But it's so easy for people to collectively forget about stuff that just happened last year. So when people say, like, back in the good old days, I always ask him, what days are you talking about? Which <laughs> which particular... Can you tell me from, um, from month, day, and year to other month, day, and year were the good old days? And did you recognize them as the good days when you were there or not? And it's just so... How do I say this? Without sounding even more of an asshole. No, I'm, I'm going to be an asshole for this one. Um, <laughs> That's all right. When white people say, oh, back in the good old days, we didn't have that. Well, back in the good old days, many people didn't have rights. And back in the good old days, you could collectively say whatever you want because people were afraid that you would retaliate by killing them. Yes. Or by, or as you even said this before, like if, if you're a woman and you went against your husband against something, you could be institutionalized for being quote unquote hysterical. So I don't think this 50s perfect suburb life ever existed. I think all of it was just advertising, mass market advertising and propaganda. And 
Yeah, that, that's the whole thing. And we see it today. And I said yeah. this, like, why are, you, why are you choosing to be delusional? I talk about mm-hmm. this in regards to, like, COVID, where people are saying, they're like, oh, we're going back to normal. And I'm like, we are never going back to normal. And even when, mm-hmm. even normal, even normal wasn't good at all. If you haven't learned the past two years, if, if the past two years haven't taught you anything how, like, what we had before wasn't good, what will? Mm-hmm. What will? I could give. I'm not gonna go into much too much detail about this because I'm, I'm already gonna go off in a rant and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're talking about movies today. It's all good. That mm-hmm. as far as like, do I think? Wait, the question was, do I think the 50 suburb, perfect suburb life ever existed? No. When people mention like back in the good old days, they're always forgetting. They're always romanticizing, and. They just need a reality check. Yeah, and I I can agree with um with a good bit of that. I think um just to kind of add a little bit of my own two cents, myself and I have a friend who is also um a person of color, and we both love dressing from vintage eras. So mm-hmm. I own a lot of vintage clothing. I style my hair in vintage styles that some people contemporary would look at and be like, oh, that's like grandma style and i'm like i don't care i like it i enjoy it but then sometimes when people will see myself or my friend dressed in our like vintage outfits and we look like pinup bottles like we look like people from the night like women from the 1950s they're like oh don't you wish you lived in like the 1950s or do you feel like you were born in the wrong decade and i kid you not my friend will be like no and then they're like what do you mean but like you dress like them and all this and she's like yeah but if I lived in the time that I dressed like, I wouldn't be able to go outside my house. Because she's like, I'd be at risk of being lynched or killed or shot or all this. And she's like, plus I'm mixed. And she's like, and I'm mixed with other minorities. It's not half white, half black. It's black and Asian and all these other things. She's a whole mixture of wonderful cultures. She's like, if people found out I exist, she's like, I don't think I'd exist anymore, quite honestly, if I lived in those times. (laughs) And so it's this idea of there's certain things we can romanticize. I feel like fashion and clothing, um, aesthetic, but we keep it as an aesthetic. It's something that is surface and it's something you can either choose to do for others or for yourself, where this kind of way of dressing is something I like to do for myself. But if we begin to romanticize things so much that we forget that history, we're in really dangerous waters because kind of to piggyback off of your American dream statement, I think at some aspect this idea of the nuclear family, perfect life, I think there were aspects of it that did exist, where I think there were people who were off of the war, genuinely just happy to be back, starting a family. And I've seen it, even to this day, where that really can fulfill the lives of certain people. And that's wonderful. If it does, that is amazing. But I think a bigger aspect is there was such a gap in connection to the actual disparities that were happening in those times where if it affected you it really affected you and if it didn't you didn't even realize it was a problem Mm. and it's an overgeneralization of course to a very nuanced subject but i think to bring it back to this this idea of back in the good old days Just like your question. It's like, what days were you talking about? Are you talking about last week? Are you talking about two years ago when, you know, like people were still 
getting shot and buildings were still being put on fire two years ago before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you referring to? Are you talking about back when we were in in active wars or now where we're still in war? Like, what is it you're talking about? And if you're just wanting to fantasize and escape, there's also nothing wrong with wanting that amidst of all of this chaos that we're all going through. But I think to look back at it, to just say that this like ideal perfect suburban life was something aspirational, I think is a misstep because that life was also kind of exclusive to a certain type of people. Definitely. And to ignore that um, is, uh, I, I don't think is right. Um, yeah. Because I know how much, again, as an immigrant family, even my grandparents in our country, so outside of America, in our country, we were influenced by the right, the the might of the United States. And my family wanted to have that same type of ideal, that same nuclear family. And even still, in a completely different nation, it was it was still lacking. But people were just doing their best. Mm. And I think the more that we just try to do our best with what we have, the better chances we'll have at feeling and being happy with where we are. Because it's good to have aspirations and goals, but you also need to learn how to be content. Be content with where you are in present. And I'm glad to know that I feel like nowadays, a lot of especially younger perception, our generation, millennials, Gen Z, even then, as much as a lot of these younger generations get flack, I do believe there's a little bit strong of a sense of understanding self-care and self-love and happiness. Genuinely trying to do things in for yourself. But, you know, it's so nuanced that if you do it too much, you're arrogant. If you don't do yeah. it enough, you're withholding. So it's just this balancing act. So all is to say, we're all part of life. The American dream, who knows if it ever existed and life can suck. So try to smile. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So I want to talk about the production of this movie. So when I was reading, doing research on this movie, I saw that there have been several attempts to adapt the novel into a film since the 1960s. And there were directors who were interested in the rights to the novel kept changing hands a few times since the 1960s. And it got to around like the early 2000s and someone else got the rights to it. I can't, I don't forget, I don't remember their name. But when that script finally like got in front of Kate Winslet, she convinced Leonardo DiCaprio to star in the film and her then husband, Sam Mendes, to direct this film. And mm-hmm. speaking of the use of color um, in this film, even though I wasn't speaking of it, I just... Not very good at transitions. He was not, but he really wants to talk about it. So just let him have this. <laughs> so in the beginning of the movie, there's this flashback where they're at this party. They see each other from across the room and they talk to each other. And the color in this, in this during the flashbacks, they're always warm colored. Contrasted to the current, quote unquote, current time, it's very cold. There's a lot of cold colored. It's not a lot. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's very muted as well. Yeah. It's a muted, cool colored palette. Definitely. When it's in the present. Especially when you see Frank go to work. It's full of people, oh, but there's muted colors. It's just beige. Yeah. <laughs> it's just shades and shades of beige. So it just really shows how, like, they were happy then. But are they really now? They're not. Mm. <laughs> and They're, No. And they show April's world in this movie as well. You kind of see this when she's taking out the garbage when she's at home. It's very colorful, like, where she lives. Like, there's a lot of green, but it's mm. empty. There's no one else in sight. 
and she's just yeah. there. She just has her own form of loneliness. They both have their own form of loneliness. Yes. Frank is surrounded by people, but he's lonely. I can relate to that. Yep. And April is at home by herself in an empty neighborhood. Isolated. I can also relate to that. So it just shows like they're both lonely. Moving on to cinematography. So I didn't realize until I saw the credits of this movie that Roger Deakins, the great Roger Deakins, was the cinematographer for this movie. And I thought that was like... Roger Deakins. (laughs) He was in... He did Blade Runner 2049, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and he also did 1917. Also with Sam Mendes. And he did... Yep. And he did Shawshank Redemption. Exactly. Yeah. So... Like... uh, I never thought this would be up his alley, but apparently he really liked to. He really wanted to do this, and as they yeah. used natural lighting as much as possible. And, I believe it. And even in that house, so I want to talk about that house real quick. That's a real house. They searched over really? 200 houses. <gasps> they looked at over two hundred houses, and they found one that was like just the right size, like not too big to show that mm-hmm. they're not that wealthy, and not too small. Mm-hmm. So that the people can actually film in there. So it was yeah, just I was like going right, to say, to fit a crew, yeah. yeah. It was like the That's right size. Cool. And the actual homeowners gave permission for DreamWorks to actually dismantle, remodel the interior and exterior just so they can make the movie. Wow. So he Mendes wants to film like make it feel like a claustrophobic dynamic on set. So that's why they decided to choose a real house instead of like building their one on set. That makes sense, yeah. And even the, the neighbor's house, like that was also mm-hmm. there. It just happened to be there. Wow, that's really cool. I mean, yeah. for I mean, I'm sure I'm sure listeners might know, but in case y'all don't know, it's so common now. Even then, like it's so common to just just go on a soundstage, build build mm. the set, like have the set. As much as it might be expensive, like filming in a real house in a real on location area, that's like that's cool. That's really cool, especially if they're filming off of natural lighting, because that yes. makes sense. I remember in the one of the final scenes with Kate Winslet when she just goes out to the trees. I remember looking at that and being like, yo, is this is this just natural lighting? Because yeah. all the shadows looked like... I was like, I don't think they're using any lights. I was like, yeah. I feel like they're just filming at, at daybreak. And now you tell me this, I'm like, wow, that's so cool. And I can imagine someone like Roger Deakins would want that. Yeah. Because just creatively, it helps tell that story. And just like you said, with Sam Mendes wanting to create that claustrophobic feel... I don't know if you've ever seen how many people in a crew it takes to film. <laughs> okay, just for a quick example, because that's the first thing that came to my mind. Don't judge me, people. But I don't know if you know how many people it takes minimum to film a sex scene. But I'm just picturing that tiny kitchen with like 20 people in there <laughs> just filming them on a countertop. I'm like, you want to talk claustrophobia? And awkwardness. I think Sam nailed it. I think Sam nailed it. I, I thought you were going to say, like, do you know how, how many crew members it takes to change a light bulb? Yes. <laughs> oh, None. Man. You just give it to the gaffer. <laughs> but, yeah. So, before this, he also worked on Deacons. Before this, he worked on Menaces on Jarhead, which was shot with a combination of, like, jib and handheld camera equipment. And... Ooh. He also did that with this film as well. And he also, he went even the, the extra mile for this. He analyzed every light fixture in the house. And there was like the street lights for, remember like the, the, like in the street when they had that fight in the street? Mm-hmm. He wanted the uh, street lights to give a particular rectangular tapered light. And for an argument in the realer's front room, he wanted a ceiling fixture that was in light down and out in a fan shape with a hard edge. And it's like, 
deacons. Like, this is okay. why he's de- this is why he has Oscars. Like, it's that level of like minute thinking in the details that like ain't nobody else care. Ain't not a single other person care. But Deacons cares. And all we know is we see the difference. Because I will say, if there's anything about the movie, the shots are impeccable. Mm-hmm. So many of the shots. They're interesting. They're well curated. Like that combined with, because um, I could talk a little bit about the costume design just to bring it up. I, it's very interesting to me watching this movie as how I mentioned, I'm someone who really enjoys the aesthetic of vintage era. And what I mean by vintage era is I'm specifically talking about times between the 1920s, 1930s, 40s, and 50s. I enjoy the 60s a lot as well, but they're just very different types of fashion, mm-hmm. especially the 50s, which I'm quite familiar with. The 50s was a very colorful time because the 40s was was uh, muted because war. So they had to ration out fabric and color. So things were less colorful during the 40s. And in the 50s, it first became this wave of the the war is over, happiness, color, and life. And the fact that those roles are basically reversed in this film, where now we're in a muted 1950s and the, 19, the late 1940s, early 50s is now this colorful livelihood. That's very interesting because you see it in the costumes. April wears so much blue and so much muted yellow where Frank wears a lot of beige. He wears a lot of just central like corporate colors that again, it just makes them look like, and then you combine that with Deacon's whole thing about how a shot looks, his whole shot composition. And you just have a great characterization on how these are two people that are very muted with their lives. They feel stifled with their lives that the color has been sucked away. And now we're seeing a picture of that through the creatives behind the scene, which is so cool. It's so cool to look at that. Definitely. Plus, I mean, the man made Blade Runner 2049. So I'm like, I would not have seen this coming. (laughs) (laughs) And now a word from our sponsors. Now back to the show. Perfect Blue is a 1997 Japanese animated psychological horror film directed by Satoshi Kon. It is based on the novel Perfect Blue, Complete Metamorphosis by Yoshikazu Takushi, with a screenplay written by Sadayuki Murai. The film follows Mima Kirigoe, a member of a Japanese idol group who retires from a music career to pursue an acting career. As she becomes a victim of stalking, gruesome murders begin to occur and Mima starts to lose her grip on reality. The film features the voices of Yonku Iwao, Rika Matsumoto, Shihu Niyama, Masaiki Okura, Shimpachi Suji, and Emiko Furukawa. Now this film was on Jason's list. Jason, why was this on your list? All right, so before I go over exactly why this movie was on my list, I want to talk about the director, Satoshi Kon. There was an interview with him about this movie, and they were asking many questions about like the production of the movie and what was his intentions were with this film. So this movie is very confusing. Mima is losing her grip between reality and fantasy. She doesn't know what's real. She doesn't know what's not real. And we're along for the ride with that. And he said that was the point of the whole film. They really wanted to keep the audience guessing. And they wanted to do it right from the beginning when they were starting to write the script. And they originally planned for it to be easier to follow, but then they decided, like, making the audience guess a little more 
they can just draw their own conclusions from their own imagination. He thought that'd be a lot more better to do. And he thought that was, in the end, that was the right decision to do. And we could talk about whether that was like the right decision or not. They just wanted to be elusive and the ending wasn't nearly, apparently to him, according to him, it wasn't nearly as vague as their original intention. According for, oh. Yeah. And really? Now, yeah. They didn't notice how many quick cuts there were while in production. From their perspective, they didn't really go out of their way to confuse the viewer. They didn't really mm-hmm. do anything out of the ordinary with making a film. They just saw this as another film to make and just did all the ordinary yeah. things that you do for a production. They just didn't see anything special for it. And his message about the film is pretty long and colluded. I don't think he really put into any thought about the message of the film <laughs> when he, he was yeah. asked this question. But he, he ultimately said, you're ultimately the only person who could truly find a place where you know you belong. That was how he ended the quote. I can give you the full, full quote, but I don't want to. So we're going to skip that. That's so interesting. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to look up that quote later. I'll, I'll give you the video. I'll give you the video. Okay. Um, Sounds good. Now, as to why this was on my list. Yes, and... please explain why you chose to traumatize me. Okay. I didn't choose to do this. I didn't okay. know. I didn't know this movie was really? as fucked up. I didn't know it was as <laughs> fucked up as it was. I knew it was a horror movie. I didn't yeah. know it was that fucked up. Um, yeah. So... Have you heard of this YouTuber named Every Frame of Painting? No. Oh, mm-hmm. I think you'll love this guy. He, I don't want to say he's the OG film scholar on YouTube, mm-hmm. but many people imitate his video styles that you might even notice today. He started back his channel back Ooh. in 2014. He doesn't have that cool. many videos, and he doesn't continue to do those videos now. But they were so nice. influential that it kind of like changed my way of seeing films when I came out of high cool. school. He made me see... Jackie Chan in a different light. I, I love Jackie Chan, but nice. he made me see like he made me like appreciate his greatness even more. Yes. And he's he he's what got me into what's his name? Bong Joon Ho before everyone yes. was on Bong Joon Ho's mm-hmm. um before Parasite, yep. way before Parasite. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he did a video about cutting and editing. And he used Perfect Blue and he used Paprika, both from Satoshi Kone as a director, yes. mm-hmm. as examples. Yep. So that's why it was on my list. And I want, I, this one has been on my list since like 2014. So I just never got a chance to see it. I just never got a chance to see it. And I thought, you know, now's the time. Now's the time. Wow. I'm honored, honestly. That's so long of a wait to see a movie. (laughs) I'm honored that you, you chose to see it this one because I mean, as much as I'm giving you flack for, you know, how (laughs) freaking, how much of a mind fuck this is. Like, I really do appreciate the introduction to this film because this is a fantastic work of art yeah if there's any anything been of the such especially with the subjects it grapples with this film is impeccable at how good it tells its story so Mm -hmm. i'm i'm glad that you chose to finally see it and now i got to enjoy it too the fact that i wasn't spoiled for eight years yes is impeccable i i had no i knew there was murder in it i knew that much Mm -hmm. I knew she was losing her grip on reality. Yeah. I knew it was about a, a musician turning into an actress trying to change a career. That's all I knew. Mm-hmm. Everything else I had no idea about. And the fact that like eight years I never knew. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I just loved it. I loved it. Absolutely. So how traumatized are you okay, by listen. what you've seen, Jason? <laughs> this movie fucked me up completely there let me let me tell you this i even said this on twitter 
there was Jason Ramirez before Perfect Blue, and there is Jason Ramirez after Perfect Blue. Okay, I had no idea what I was watching. I left every We're single a second of man it. Now. <laughs> and yeah, I, I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> but I don't remember who I was. Are anymore. you even Jason? <laughs> who is am Jason? I? Who am I? <laughs> But yeah, the, like the thing I love about this movie is that you have no idea what is real. You're along for the ride with Mima. And yes. they just show it per- show perfectly. Like, she'll be in one scene, say one line, and then all of a sudden she's somewhere else in a different time. And it's exactly. like, whoa, whoa. We ha- there were no clues that we were in this situation Literally. before. And yeah, it's just like, oh, I-, I loved it. And... I always have a hard time focusing on. Um, I think it's gotten worse throughout the years, like having having a hard time focusing in movies. But I focus for this movie, and even then, I, it threw me for a loop. Oh so. yeah, absolutely. I was taking notes and everything, and I was still like, for for a moment, I didn't know if this was gonna be some like science fiction twist, and I was wondering if she was like trapped in a time loop. I kid you not. Yeah. I think I saw too much dark and Arrival and all this other stuff that I was like, <laughs> oh, is she like? in a in a wormhole like that was my thought because it's just the sense of reality is so, they distort it so well and i love that you mentioned about um this youtuber analyzing the quick cuts and the editing of this movie because the editing is impeccable mm. if there is an example of how editing can create a story it's perfect blue mm-hmm. because the sense of distortion and genuine psychosis disruption of your own reality the fact that the frame is the exact same and you don't even notice the cut that she is now in a completely different place that's awesome Mm -hmm. it's so cool that they pulled that off as many times as they did in this story yeah and i also want to do like a quick uh how do i say this quick reminder because i don't give these as much anymore this spoiler warning for this movie yes if you have not seen this movie and you're interested in watching this movie, stop listening to this podcast. Go watch it and then come back and see this. Go watch it. Come back. We'll still be here. <laughs> Talking about it. Needing to go to a meeting. <laughs> we'll be here. If you don't care, well, that's on you. Keep listening, I guess. If you have if you have watched the movie, keep listening. What surprised you the most from this film? We talked about the quick cuts and edits. Um, let's talk about like the story in this film. Ooh, okay. What surprised you? A lot. It has <laughs> been, I will say, it has been a it has been a long time since I have been this consistently surprised by a singular film. I have seen a good couple TV shows in the last year and a half that have had a good couple of moments of surprise, like genuine earned surprise that I've really enjoyed. But this movie genuinely had me like twisting my head looking at my notes deciphering stuff like a detective trying to figure it out on a first watch and i just kept being in awe of everything it was throwing at me because i genuinely didn't know what to expect i knew that this had influenced darren aronofsky for black swan 
which is a movie that I enjoy. I love a lot. So I grabbed onto the duality of men of mental breakdown pretty quickly. Like I figured that Mima and then the Mima alter or um, alter ego that kind of manifested. I gathered that that was her and her mind getting distorted. I picked that up pretty quickly, but what they did with that, especially now really getting into spoiler territory, when they started combining her acting work into her daily life where we didn't know if she had done the crime or if this was just her acting in a scene. I could not have picked that. I didn't even know that she was like a pop idol trying to be an actress, which a lot of that actually really stuck to me personally. And that surprised me. Just a lot of what she goes through because, um, and we can delve more into that um, with however you'd like, Jason, but just there is a big, um, and I say this as a woman in the industry who even at my time at acting school had to succumb to essentially figure out what this answer was for me as a performer, where there is this idea, especially for something like someone like an idol, where now we have like K-pop idols, but even then like superstar celebrity culture has existed for a very long time. But it is a whole different thing when you get to idol culture and play in countries like Korea and Japan. And so there is this gap between if you're some sort of musician or performer and you want to make the transition into being a quote unquote serious actor or actress that you have to compromise yourself in some way um, to basically rid yourself of this innocence or whatever that reputation you have is. You basically have to purge that in order to be taken seriously. Mm. This is not saying it's it's true, but it very much is a heavy connotation in the industry. I know that for myself, I, for a very long time, I was the kind of person that I knew the kind of characters I wanted to play. Um, I tend to gravitate towards like serious drama as well as comedy because I just enjoy lighthearted nature, but I really do love delving into deep, disturbed characters. However, when I was younger, uh, when I was much younger around my teens, when I was first getting into, into my acting school, there was this kind of air where sometimes my acting coaches would tell me that I was like cute, quote unquote. They're like, you're just being cute right now. And they would genuinely tell me, they're like, do you really wanna be an actress? Why are you even here? Like not saying mm. these are the best, <laughs> greatest mm. people, but they tell that to your face because that was the kind of program I was in. It was a conservatory that was very strict on like, if you were doing crap, they were like, why do you even wanna be here? Do you really wanna be taken seriously? Do you think anyone will take you seriously as an actor? And with this idea of Mima having to do this very sexually overt scene, as well as the rape scene that she had to do. I, as someone who has had to portray a very similar situation, there's a quote from Sarah Paulson where she's talking about the sensory experience of inhabiting traumatic experiences for film. And the thing that actors do that is tried and true about life, but we tap into it for our work, is that the brain and the subconscious does not know the difference between truth and fiction. It just knows what is. So what you can do is manipulate it to believe something is happening and your brain will do the rest of the work and it'll be in your body. It's what actors do. If you are about to kill someone or if you are going through a panic attack, you can trick your brain into believing that's happening even though you're in a completely safe environment surrounded by a crew and you can inhabit that emotion, that feeling to tell that story. When it is things that are so serious 
like what she has to do. And I myself as someone who's had to do it before, Sarah Paulson said she said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing poorly, the things that you make yourself experience doesn't leave your body when they call cut. Mm -hmm. It stays with you. And sometimes you might be able to get out of it. And sometimes it will take you moments. It'll take you hours. It could take you a day because it stays in your body. Your body is being traumatized and it doesn't know that it isn't real. And that's a responsibility that I think as far as this is just something I care about a lot and it made me it made me connect and empathize a lot more with Mima is to have to do that. Like when Rumi cried watching Mima have to do that scene, I so connected to her because I've seen that with friends of mine and I have been Mima in that situation where you're compromising so much for the sake of art, but if it's something as superficial as just to be taken seriously, there is a much bigger issue in terms of whatever system put that into place that has to make someone feel like this is what they have to do to be taken seriously. Why can't their work be enough? Why can't the work stand for itself? It's not saying like it's a good or bad decision. It's just, why couldn't I not have to do this to myself? Why could I, why could I not cover up? Why is it seen as liberating? Why is now my innocence taken away from me because I've done this and now Hollywood or the industry or my audience will no longer see me as the pop idol. And that's just something that I know is very prevalent in the entertainment industry. You can see it with, with artists nowadays, like Lady Gaga, where she went from an amazing musician and now she's an Academy Award nominated actress. But there's so many times that this compromise, and not just for females, for all people in acting, where if you come from some particularly deemed, like whether it's lesser or it's like more lighthearted background, you have to do some crazy stuff. You gotta go through the method or something to be taken seriously when you could just do good work. <laughs> you just do good work and eat some ice cream and then go home and you're you again. I had a teacher who told us when they were first teaching us this very thing, it's called sensory training for any listeners that are actors that are interested, um, where she told us she had us all get into incredibly emotional, borderline pissed off, traumatic, violent states. And then she told us all to calm down, get out of it. And some of us were still staying there because it's a very strong emotion, you can imagine, especially a lot of the guys who were there who chose to tackle a lot of anger. And our teacher straight up told them with like the most callous like response, she's like, it's not real. Eat some ice cream. Like what's your favorite <laughs> flavor of ice cream? And then they're like, they're like fit angry and they're like chocolate. And they're like chocolate <laughs> with what? They're like, Rocky Road and they're like yeah like with the marshmallows they're like yeah like the marshmallows they're like you should get some ice cream he's like yeah I'll get some ice cream <laughs> they calm down so it's just the way that you can put yourself in these states really connected with Mima that surprised me the most and just to put it all together it's so much that goes into the work of acting but then when you add this story of this disjointment of reality and then the toxic fandom on top of that which is a whole group of people who feel like they know Mima who think they know Mima who think they can speak on her behalf when the real person is telling them I want to be an actress I was a singer but now I want to do something else and now a whole group of people outside of who you are are telling you that you are not even yourself because you don't fit into their idealized fantasy of who you are. Mm -hmm. 
that's enough to mess up anybody. And I love how this movie takes that on. Because Mima is literally fighting for her life, for her ability to do more than what she was told to do. And she pays the price at the end for not meeting her fans' expectations. Mm. The fact that other people can have that much control over an image of somebody, that that image can come to life and take your life away from you, is a great metaphor to what toxic parasocial fandom culture can do to celebrities. And it explains why if you look at, not saying this is exactly what it is, but in the 90s, there were stalkers and cases like this that took place during this very same time. There was a stalker for Bjork who um, that I know that came out close to this time where it's those things that take away that excuse of like, oh, this is this is heightened reality. It's like, no, this is very real. And nowadays with social media, this is even more real because people can find your location. People, if they like you, then they form a fantasy of you and they think they know you, especially with YouTubers. And then they meet you in real life. It's like that saying, don't meet your heroes. (laughs) Well, now if the people don't like the hero they meet, they could do something. Or even on a lighter sense, they could cancel you. And all those things just put so much responsibility now on the person that it makes people forget that, hey, they're human too. They're going to make mistakes like Mima. And I think to round that back into how you see it with the things that surprised you and how much, you know, this fucked you up and this, um, this idea that you were talking about with like fandoms and social media, how do you think this takes on a representation of today? Like seeing this from today, how was that for you? of this fans and the way that they treated them, especially with things like social media now. Yeah, so I have a couple of stories about this. So yeah. first of all, I want to mention that this movie serves as the perfect time capsule for the early internet and mm-hmm. people associated with just computers in general. Because in the movie, uh, Rumi is showing Mima how to use a computer and how to use the internet. And she finds this fandom site. She's like, what is this? I have no idea what this is. She, she thought it was mm-hmm. funny at first. And so she was like, wait a minute, this is very specific about me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was like creepy to see, like, ooh, we get into some real shit. Yeah. So I started first meeting celebrities at conventions when I was like 19. Um, Mm. I I met Katie Cassidy. She she played Black Canary in Arrow. And she follows me on Twitter. She follows me on Twitter. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because I asked her to, but like, I don't think she really pays attention. (laughs) I think she has me on mute. But, but she I, follows, but you got the follow. Yeah, and because of this, I have a couple of stories. So there's this feat. There was this. I'm not sure if there's still a feature on Twitter, but there's this feature where like people can put you into a group chat without you even like knowing it. So that's what happened to me. One night, one morning, I wake up and I get this like all these messages of like in this group chat, in a Twitter group chat, and mm-hmm. it's just people. I look at their profiles and they like really liked Arrow and like The Flash, whatever. And they're asking me, hey, how do you know Katie Cassidy? Like, how are you relate to her or whatever? And, like, how, how does she follow you? Like, how would you get her to follow you? And I'm like, oh, God. What? You went through yeah. her follower list and put me in there because I'm as close to you, like, in that general area? And I was like, I didn't answer any questions. I just said, nope, I'm out. And I changed my settings so that no one else could do that with me unless I, unless we follow each other, right? Gotcha. And that's just one aspect Uh, that's just one story because like that's how the parasocial relationship thing that is that's existing right there they want like they want to meet their their heroes 
but they're being kind of creepy about it, and yeah. no one's really Kinda. calling them out on it. <laughs> and so another aspect of this is that a few years later, I won a contest to go see Hamilton, and I was Lin-Manuel Miranda's guest um, throughout the whole day. Oh. And Whoa. I was a starstruck. <laughs> I love I, Lynn, so what? I have a whole YouTube video on this. It's not the best oh video. Oh my god. But it was like 2018. I was young. I was 21. That's awesome. The thing is, I was just introduced to Hamilton the year before, and I was obsessed throughout the whole year, and then I got to meet him. I was like, whoa. That's and I brought I brought my friend along, my best friend, because she holds me in check. You know, like she's my best friend. Yeah. And she, I, I just basically told her, if I'm freaking out, if I'm acting like too much of a fanboy, check me. <laughs> and she, yeah, I, and like, exactly. Luck, luckily, I was in my on my best behavior. The only time I freaked out was when, after seeing Hamilton, we went up to our hotel room, and I freaked out. Like, did this day just happen? Yes. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and As was like, you should yeah. when you're away. <laughs> yeah, when I was away. And I was away. I was like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. Did this day just happen? Very paraphrasal, paraphrasing bit. Even before that, so like when we went from the Kennedy's, because it was in D.C. So the Kennedy Center is right next to the Watergate Hotel, right? You've been to D.C., right? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's like literally a short walk away. But we had to mm-hmm. go in a car because if Lynn started walking... People will, like, crowd around him and ask him for oh, audio- yeah. autographs. And he's very nice. Easily. He'll he'll do it. He'll take pictures. But it'll take him forever just to get to the Kennedy Center. Absolutely. Which is, like, less than a five-minute walk away. Literally, it's mm-hmm. that close. So we had to go in these big black cars and separate cars wow. just to make sure we got there. We got there a little late. Like, just on time to get there. Mm-hmm. And when we get there, there are people already waiting for photos, right? Yeah. And I, that makes sense. But, like, they're, like, fans. I, I get that. I probably would have done the same thing, like, mm-hmm. and we get there and we see the show. Once the show ends, we go back in cars again, back to the hotel, and there are people there waiting already. They know he's at, he's going to be at that hotel, right? Like, they're already paparazzi. Oh There's this one guy, I remember specifically, he broke through the doors to ask Lin-Manuel for, for an autograph, and he was, like, one of those, like, people who put these autographs online. So he had like a poster board of six um, magazine covers, like Entertainment Weekly and magazine covers of Lynn as Hamilton. And he says, Lynn, can you please sign these? I'm just thinking like this dude just like broke through the doors and I'm walking side by, I'm like right on Lynn's left, right? Because like there was like, there was like security guards in front and to the right of him, but there was no one on his left. So I was like covering him on that left. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I was I like, don't worry. Left I'm a big guy. Left. <laughs> I'm a 6'1", 250, and I know martial arts, so I was like, nice. I, Lynn, I got you, <laughs> and we're, like, walking, <laughs> and this dude, like, wrist breaks, I'm like, what, what? <laughs> oh, my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> and Lynn's like, I'll sign one, because he knew that situation, and he signed it, and he kept asking for more, the guy kept asking for more, but, like, after that, we just went up to the elevator, yeah. and the other security guard replaced me, like, hey, I got this, and I'm like, okay, we're, and then we're in the elevator to go upstairs to, like, the after party and I said hey Lynn don't worry I, I know I know Kung Fu I, I can protect you oh my <laughs> and I yeah, bet the, you you felt so like a badass didn't you when I, yeah, you yeah. told him that cause you're like don't worry I know Kung Fu <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> and they, they all laughed that was the intention that, that, for mm. them to all laugh I would have fucked someone yeah, up if they touched him yeah oh I believe it I believe it but yeah so 
what you're saying about like social media and fans. So with that aspect for Lynn, that was like a little bit more like meeting people in real life. And for yeah. the Katie Cassidy story, that's for like pretty. I I I hope it's not as common, but I think it's as more common of people like trying to track these people through their Absolutely, mutual yeah. followers. And mm-hmm. I would say the Katie Cassidy story creeped me out a lot more than the Lemon Wall. Absolutely, uh, because Lynn yeah. had security. Lynn had people around him. Yeah, and because you know it's it's a little bit more. You're able to control your environment more when it's in real life. It's yeah. this virtual world that there's so many outlying factors that you variables you have no idea exactly exist because i mean look at you like you're just one person in who knows a swimming pool an ocean of people that this woman katie cassidy follows and Mm -hmm. there were people enough in the world to literally care meticulously enough to scroll through find your name and then put in the energy to ask you questions find your information so they could message like that is scary yeah that is scary that that information is out there and that that's the world we live in yay so we see this as well with current fanboys and fangirls like the fandom like in general fandom in general today where they have so much more access to the celebrities right and some of these celebrities are more open to it because it brings up their clout or they're more engaging with their fans. And I don't see any fault in that. What I do see some faults in is that some of these fandom people are getting a little too powerful. Yes. <laughs> they, they, yes, like I agree. You're getting t- too much information. Like it's, It feels like a parasocial relationship where they feel like they know the person, but... They don't actually know them. They don't know you. You don't know them at all. Yeah. They don't even know you exist. So how can you have yes. a really? How can you be friends with this person who doesn't even know you exist? Right. Yeah. I can say something different about Lim and Well because he actually knows me. I'm gonna cut that out. <laughs> all right. Oh my gosh. No. Keep it. Keep it. He <laughs> no. said it, guys. Lin Manuel um, Miranda knows Jason Ramirez. He said I was his favorite guest. Oh yeah. my gosh. Hey, say that. That's awesome. The there's this one particular story I rem- I always think about because it just goes to show that some people one could use a reality check and two should also step outside of their step aside of their mind and see it for themselves like how they're acting if that makes sense where mm-hmm. i i've have you have you seen this video i think i've told you before i'm not sure if you say you have but there is this convention and at these conventions celebrities come in talk about their movies and they'll take mm-hmm. uh, a and a from the audience right so yeah. in this convention, there was, I believe, Sebastian Stan, Anthony Mackie, and Tom Holland. And I believe Kevin Smith was moderating the, the panel. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I've seen that panel, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so there were like a young people in the audience. They were asking them questions mm-hmm. like, um, I guess generic questions like, what's your favorite movie or like whatever. There was this particular moment where this one young lady, she asked, I guess, about Tom's dog or whatever. Or she mentioned the dog by name. And Anthony mm-hmm. Mackie's like, wait, who's that? And she comes back and turns around like, that's Tom Holland's dog. Learn your research, whatever. She snaps back at him. And it's like, mm-hmm. it was rude. It was funny. It was funny to see. Like, it what is, the? Yeah. <laughs> but it was also very rude. Like, she acted like uh, like Anthony, Anthony Mackie should know about Tom Holland, right? And she acted yeah. like she actually knew Tom Holland. Because, like, he's kind of posted his information himself up online. And it's just uncomfortable to see that like just just to see that let's just say if i ever get to that position where i'm 
the Jason Ramirez, I'm going to mm. be very reserved with my social media. Yeah. I, I already I, am. <laughs> a bit. I'm going to be even more reserved. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's very, it's very true and telling where there's a lot of celebrities that if you notice, anytime they try to begin social media, they are legit dinosaurs. Like they are dinosaurs when it comes to it. Like I remember when freaking Amy Adams and like Jennifer Aniston finally got talked into social media or heck Will Smith. I mean, I think he's probably made one of the best evolutions into the internet age out of anyone in that age range. But when they all came out, like they really had no, like Adele, like, and she's not even, she's not old. Neither (laughs) of them. She's like 30. (laughs) Yeah. But they really like don't know how to work this. And the thing is, it can be easy and kind of endearing to look at that and be like, oh, it's kind of like they're like us. But no, that is for a reason. There is a reason why these high profile people who are less um, active on the internet space or in the tabloid space who keep this very private, reserved personal life and then they put their art out there. That is all on purpose. That is intentional. There is not a single celebrity out there with a private life without that being on purpose. And if a celebrity is out there exploited, that is also on purpose. What's unfortunate is in the way that they are exploited and put their information out there because some celebrities do have a say in that and others like you have your Britney Spears whose stories get, or your Lindsay Lohan's where, whose very, very personal issues get taken with by tabloids and paparazzi and blown out for the world to see. And no human being on the world deserves that as much as people can be flawed and make a lot of mistakes. People don't deserve that level of invasion of privacy. And too often celebrities get told things like, and even sometimes to the level of YouTubers where even they'll get told like, well, you, you should expect this. You chose Mm. this. They say something like, well, you're an actor. You should expect this. No, no. These people just signed on to do their job because they like their job. If they're a musician, they like playing music. If they're an actor, they like being in scenes. No one here signed up for being chased and followed by cars to the point where they could get in a car crash because these people following them want a photo of them eating a sandwich. Mm. Nobody signed up for that. And yet there's such a great area where a celebrity can only say so much about it without offending somebody. Definitely. Or hurting or risking destroying their image definitely that's the other thing where they're in this very tough spot where it's not to say like oh phil so sorry for these millionaires and billionaires like (laughs) it's not that (laughs) they're all people thing is these are all still people and if that's something that you would want i'm just a big believer of that treat people the way you want to be treated i'm just like if you would want that same kind of treatment how dare you like how dare you come at people when they're going through all of this, that's just another human being. They're no better than you and they're no less than you and vice versa. Like just let people live and respect their art, but don't let it go to these degrees that perfect blue shows us where if there's a guy over here willing to kill for the sake of his idea of a perfect idol, like, sir, you got to check yourself. (laughs) And not just her, not just him, but also Rumi, who also didn't want her to become an actress. She also wanted to keep her as that idol. I want to get, get back into this movie. Did you see that coming? I feel like 
I got saw that coming up until the last minute because like at that remember she woke up in the apartment and Rumi was there. I was yes. like, wait a minute, that's not her apartment. Oh my god, it's yes. Rumi. And then she, at that yes. moment, she came in with that outfit. Did you realize at that moment or did you realize sooner? I realized that something was off and that it Rumi was tied to it when she said, we're going back to Mima's room. They were in the car and she had just gotten, Rumi had picked up Mima somewhere and she just goes, yeah, don't worry. She said something along the lines of, yeah, don't worry. We're going back to Mima's room. And I audibly gasped and was like, what the, f no, that's the name of the website. That's the name of the website, Rumi. What are you on about? And then after that, I was on edge, just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I was like, and then when it was, I was like, <gasps> yeah. Yeah, I did not think it was going to be that kind of a twist, but I saw something coming when she said Mima's room because right. that's the name of the website. And so I was like, no, no, it's not her yeah. apartment. It's not her apartment. Yeah, that's that's something I, I really, I really, I don't know how to work on that, but like I realized these things a little too late. I don't realize that as soon as people, other people, then it's mm -hmm. like, oh, what? Why didn't I see that sooner? You know, but I, I guess it yeah, just helps with good. the experience as well. You know? But yeah, yeah. I was like, no no what and i was like no <laughs> get out of there <laughs> yes oh man but damn man damn. And, and how was it how was uh seeing then the rest of that scene play out of the fight between the two of them how was like, it did oh. you, yeah like did you register well actually here's my first question when you saw rumi how did you register the story because i feel like it's open up for interpretation i don't know if there's a finite definition of what's happening but what did you interpret from that scene of seeing it, it go from the mima like avatar to rumi to the fight to then like mima again like what did you think was happening like what do you think the story was there like in that final scene like the chase scene mm -hmm. yeah yeah like what do you think was happening there that they were trying to tell i'm very interested in hearing what you thought again i'm very surface level with this but i think mm -hmm. The virtual, um, that's what they call it in like the interviews, the virtual uh, Mima that you see, mm -hmm. like just like the Mima alter ego. That's how Rumi wants to be. That's who she wants to be. And I think mm -hmm. in what they were showing there was Mima running away from Rumi, but they also want to be more stylistic with it and show how Rumi saw herself. So, and there's this one scene where she's running alongside a mirror and it's virtual Mima in like quote unquote real life and Rumi in the mirror, right? Same mm -hmm. outfit. So my thing is for everyone else, people there weren't any people in this scene, right? This is like late mm -hmm. at night. There weren't any people in the streets. But if there are people in the streets, they'll see this old, um, older woman chasing on this younger lady. They would have they would have seen that, but we didn't see that because I, I, I guess also also in part right here was how Mimo was seeing this situation play out because I feel like uh, she felt Rumi was the other Mima mm -hmm. this whole time. And she could have been the whole time. Because she she also she also went through her own situation, her own psychosis. And that was all happening at the same time as Rumi doing this crazy ass shit. She actually murdered these men. Oh man. But like, yeah. And that yeah, like and that's the thing, because for me, and I don't know if this is like completely wrong or like a different interpretation. Because I still don't know. I'd honestly have to see the movie a couple more times. But what I was interpreting was, yes, it was Rumi. But I thought that the virtual Mima had come to life and possessed Rumi. Oh. That's what I thought. 
Because I thought it was like the virtual Mima is in control in the same way that she manipulated Mimania, the stalker, to write. And in the same way she manipulated other people. I thought she just did the same with Rumi and this time just like inhabited her body. So I thought it was like Rumi doing this, but also it's the virtual Mima just trying to become like the real Mima and kill the other one. And I don't know if I'm completely off there, but that's literally what I thought. Like, that's what I thought was happening when, especially when they were stylistically like cutting in between. So when like, I thought that Rumi was going to die, I was feeling worse because I thought it was like the Rumi that cares about Mima is still there, but like the bad or virtual Mima is like inhabiting her. So like she wasn't escaping, but it's really her, but it's not her. Like that's honestly what I thought. So now I'm rethinking a little bit, especially because then that throws me off in the ending scene because you know, like Rumi being admitted to the hospital. I thought it was that she was like, she got essentially messed up from some sort of possession thing. Mm -hmm. and that she wasn't going to be the same because that messes with your mind. But that's what I thought. What did you think? <laughs> I, so you might learn a little bit more about me. I don't like the fantastical element mm -hmm. of that, you know? Yeah. Um, because it just ruins the experience. Like, oh, it was all a dream the whole time. What? What? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, it, yeah. It has to be, uh, for me, it has to be grounded to some sort of reality based on what the film presented throughout the whole show right throughout the whole thing so not this not that i'm saying you're wrong because even satoshi Kon, he said this he left it up to the interpretation of the audience mm -hmm. um, based on their own imagination my own thing was like rumi has been doing this from the beginning because from the very start she wanted her to stay being a pop idol and mm -hmm. i guess after seeing all these decisions she had to make she was very upset with the um for mima's rape scene in that uh, in that show yeah she was very like i would be upset too like this it looked real right and absolutely i guess like from this from the jump she was very much like you should stay a pop idol and i oh, think she absolutely. was a fan the whole time the whole time oh, she was absolutely. a fan and she and was incredibly possessive yes she's incredibly possessive of mima being her she was her handler her agent like she that's the kind of position that you are in power of the idol so essentially, you're the person calling the shots in the idol's life. Mm -hmm. And that's a very powerful position to be in and can be very corrupt because a lot of times it's managers or agents that are the ones who usually end up being the behind the scenes reasons that stars have breakdowns right? It's because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of felt like she wanted to be her, like her mom, essentially. Yeah. Because like mm -hmm. when I first saw it, I was like, is that her mom or those are parents? Like they're trying to decide yeah. her future for her. Like, mm -hmm. very much in line with how many parents try to do the same for their own children. They're like, oh, no, mm -hmm. she's just this woman that was hired to do this job uh, to try mm -hmm. to keep up her image. And I guess she got down to the uh, level of deception because you see her actions were trying like, try to keep her back, make her go back to being a pop idol with that, that letter bomb that appeared. And that's, that, that stuff always scares me because I'm like, letter bombs? Like, you went for the trouble of Yo. making... A bomb that will be delivered and hoping it would <laughs> go off when that person opened it. When the intended target opened it. That that has always creeped me out, right? Absolutely. And then when I it mean... when it got when it hit the other manager, they decided not to call the police. I was like, what? That yeah. was a letter bomb. Yeah. And then you kind of see like because if because if the police got involved. 
they probably would have figured out it was Rumi the whole time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, I just think it was Rumi. I think it was okay. all Rumi. Uh, I think yeah. the image of virtual Mima, that was, that was, that was Mima. And that was mm-hmm. also a combination of Rumi wanted to be Mima. Yeah. Okay. I get that. I get that. Cause for, cause for me, I think, I think at some aspect it's Rumi. Like I think a lot of certain things were definitely curated by Rumi. I think where the film for me kind of, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's like merges or like transcends reality, but it's in the way that it's stylistically essentially showing you what it looks like inside the mind of someone who is experiencing psychosis, where what what that is, is you can no longer trust your reality from your fiction and your mind breaks essentially. So your sense of time and stakes and actual danger, like us in the store, like watching the movie, there are times where like, especially when Mima is, um, when there's that one um, murder scene that she's like stabbing somebody and it intercuts between Mima doing it and somebody else doing it. And you don't quite know like who's doing it. Yeah. And then there's the other scene where they talk about saying that they're like, oh, it's because she had multiple personality disorder and all this. And there was a brief moment where, because you're hearing like the detectives talk and I'm thinking, I kid you not, my thought was, oh, shoot. This was my interpretation because I didn't know that this was her just filming the scene for the movie. Mm-hmm. I legit thought it was, holy crap. Mima was never a singer. She was never an actress. Uh. She has crafted a fantasy to to like cover up her trauma because that is very much something that can be a trauma response. You can create a whole new reality for yourself as an alter and do that as a way to basically forget your trauma so you keep surviving. That is a known thing that people have done before. And so my thought was, holy crap, the actress and the actor aren't actually actors. I was like, there, she's an act, she's a psychiatrist. <laughs> I kid you not, I bought the whole story and I thought that that was reality. And then when they yell cut, I'm like, it's the fucking show? <laughs> and then I was like, fuck! Because I was like, so none of that was actual danger. And I felt robbed at a sense because I'm like, shit! And then also, I was like, oh, it's kind of lazy writing. But <laughs> <laughs> but that was because when I thought it was legit and they said the quote unquote, like multiple personality disorder, which I was surprised they said the actual clinical term, which is associative identity disorder, DID. I was like, oh no, because I thought it was real. I was like, don't tell mm-hmm. me they're about to do this because just for me, I don't like when that's misrepresented when people with DID are kind of like put in positions where their mental illness is like connected with murderous or homicidal tendencies because right. that's not a byproduct of that mental illness. So th- that was my thought. I was like, no, don't tell me that. I was like, they were doing so good. And then they tricked me. They tricked me. And I was like, this wasn't real. Damn it. You know what that reminds me of? Have you ever seen Community? I have seen some of Community. I've seen like okay. episodes here and there. So I might spoil it a little bit, but there's like this episode, there's like this arc in season three where okay. the group is kicked out of the school and mm-hmm. the one character in there who has um, Asperger's, he has like his mental illness. He kept saying like the Dean isn't real. They replaced him with someone else and they think, yeah. oh, it's, stop it, stop it. But yeah. 
he was right. <laughs> the, the guy who worked security he actually, actually replaced the dean with a lookalike so he could take control of the school. And oh my God. <laughs> so he, they thought he was crazy. So before they find out, they go to this group therapy session. And the therapist there is like, none of this is real. You're all Greendale was a mental institution. What you're talking, this is a shared um, delusion no. that you're sharing. And they cut no. back to, they cut back to a scene that looks like shows all their jokes and interactions from that whole season in like an mental institution where like they're all wearing white. It's an all white room. And doing all this stuff. They're being observed by these doctors, whatever. And they're like, wait, none of that was real? <laughs> and then they get out and then they're like, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. And then they go, come back into the therapist room and they see him trying to get out the window. He was never a therapist. Oh he was an actor yeah. hired to gaslight them. Oh my them. God. Because <laughs> they're like, Greendale is real. I have a backpack with the Greendale logo on it, Greendale Community <laughs> College, and I have several photos of me at Greendale. Oh what? Who goodness. are you? And that's when they find out that the dean actually has been replaced. Their friend yes. wasn't having the delusion, and they try, they go back and save the dean. And that's what that reminded me of. Oh, <laughs> I, I see the connection there. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, dang. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, to put it that way, that's a very lighthearted, funny way to put. Imagine how Mima feels. Yeah. In the middle of all of this, because it's not fu- it's not funny for her. It's freaking traumatizing and awful to her. I mean, like I can't I can't even like begin to fathom that idea that you think one thing is real, and then you blink, and next thing you know, it's a completely different thing. Like that—that's such a mind fuck. Because then you can't trust your own self, and something that I um something that I just know and have experienced myself. And I even think Revolutionary Road shows that to some aspects. Um, with the Kate Winslet character towards the end, where she started becoming a bit more manic, um, and angry. And both of these characters in their own ways were getting gaslit either by themselves or by the people around them of being Mm -hmm. like, no, but that's, but you have nothing to worry about, but you're overreacting or you're feeling this way. You're feeling that way, being told how you feel. And when you're in a state like that, personally, just as I've been in that before, there is such a demeaning, like, I don't know how to say degrading feeling when you know maybe you're not right in your head, but you know that what you're experiencing isn't right. And someone else tells you that what you're experiencing that's bad is okay. Right. Uh, it's this sense of your own autonomy. Like you are not within your right mind. So you don't, so you're no longer, that right for you to say no is removed from you. That's what I mean. It's kind of a long-winded way to say it, but that's what I mean is when you look at someone who, per se, let's use the word hysterical, if you see someone who you think is hysterical and all of a sudden they start telling you, kind of like Abed was saying, where he's like, no, the Dean isn't real. He's been replaced. That sounds insane. Right. But that person, as much as maybe they're not in the right mind, they're still saying the truth. It's so easy to undermine, demean, and just talk down to people for based on the way that you perceive them. And I can't imagine for Mima, she's literally losing grasp of her own reality. And the one of the people she trusted the most, Rumi, who has handled her for all these years, is the person inciting this mania. Right. 
Like, oh my God. <laughs> I want to talk about the ending. Like the legit mm -hmm. last words said in this movie. Did you watch the English dub or did you watch the subtitle version? I watched the subtitled version. I watched it in Japanese with English subtitles. Okay. So depending on how you viewed it, the endings are very different. If you okay. watched it in English, it's still Mima's voice. She says, no, okay. it's the real no, it's the real thing. Because she's responding to like that question of like, is that mm -hmm. the real Mima? Is that the real Mima? Like, I don't that she wouldn't be here. She's like, and she says she looks in the mirror and she says, No, mm -hmm. it's the real thing. And the Japanese, um, original Japanese voiceover, it's Rumi's voice. It's not Mima's voice. And she says, she's, she doesn't say no, it's the real thing. She's like, who else could it be? Yeah, she says, well, where I saw it, it was like, no, I'm real. And it's yeah, Mima's face. Yeah. It's Mima's face, but I didn't recognize that that was Rumi's voice. <gasps> that was Rumi's voice. Oh my god, because that's what I was wondering. Like, I noticed there was something off. I would probably not have thought that that was Rumi's voice. But it felt almost like, again, just kind of, it's kind of glossed over. Um, and obviously, I think differently now, just kind of hearing your own interpretation. But it's kind of still going into that possession type idea. Not like a witch possession, but in that sense of like, Mima in the body isn't the Mima we followed. It's either the altar or Rumi or whoever else in her. And that's what made me like when she was like, oh, no, I'm real. And then the movie cuts. I was like, what? 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 Yeah, that's how it ended. And I'm like, oh my God. I want to talk a little bit more about the production about this movie and a little bit of Satoshi Kona's director. So the other film I watched of his is Paprika which mm -hmm. served as the inspiration for Inception. And when I saw mm -hmm. it last year, I was so mad I didn't see it sooner. Because... Oh. From watching this film, I'm probably going to see Paprika. Yeah. It's the it's same on its level of fucked up. <laughs> yes. So, basically, I saw Inception when I was 14, and that's what inspired me to become a filmmaker and a musician. And for a little nice. bit, I also wanted to be an actor. Uh, that didn't work out too well. I, I told you why. Um, <laughs> I, apparently, I'm not very good at acting. And it's okay. Also, also I don't want to expose my feelings. <laughs> there we go. That's... Yeah. You got to do that. <laughs> got to be okay with doing that. But that movie inspired me to become a filmmaker, right? And mm. But if I'd seen Paprika instead of Inception at that moment, I would have become an animator because I love that movie so much. It is just an amazing piece of work amazing art and mm -hmm. it just showed what you can do with animation like you could go so yeah. much farther than what you're used to that's what i saw with paprika so satoshi kona is very good at what he does and i was so oh, amazed yeah. to hear that perfect blue was his first movie as a director and he did amazing like he killed it <laughs> uh, he, he literally <laughs> It's very like watching Memento back and knowing that that's, it's not technically Chris Nolan's first feature, but it's his first paid feature that like had an actual budget. Yeah. And you realize you're like, this mother, that's his first directorial, <laughs> what? And then you look, or like Tarantino and you're like, Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs? Right. For me. You? <laughs> it's, for me, it's Susan Kane. That always gets me. Yeah. I saw that. When I was like 23 Wells. and mm -hmm. we, we saw that in our film class and I'm like, 
our teacher was like, um, our professor was like, he was only 25 when he made this. And I'm like, what? Wait, what? And I saw him. Because you're 25. He was 25 when he (laughs) made this? What? And I was just amazed because, like, he acted and directed in this movie, right? That's not that's not a very good combination. I I've, I've done that before. I'm never doing that again. He was able to act young. He was able to act middle aged. He was able to act old at 25, and it's in that movie itself is considered one of the best films of all time. And I love that movie. And I'm like, God damn, 25. And also with um, what's his name, Robert Rodriguez, when he made mm-hmm. um, El Mariachi for seven thousand yeah. dollars when he was 23. That's what I was trying to do yep. at 23, but the panini had to happen. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, the panini. So, as far as, like, Satoshi Kon, he, he takes his approach to animation from other live-action filmmakers, such as David Lynch, Terry Gilliam, mm-hmm. and Alfred Hitchcock. And he basically used that into his animation movies. Yeah, you can tell. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> David Lynch. <laughs> so, as far as, like, the development, so, the original author of this... Um, I, I'm going to butcher his name, I'm sorry. Yoshikazu Takeuchi, he wanted it first planned as a live-action film based on his novel, but there were difficulties with the funding, and so it was downgraded to direct-to-video, and then direct-to-video animation. And Satoshi Kon had worked on like the OVA, original video animation of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. That's how mm. old JoJo's is. Nice. And he was just put on to, to become director and also write it. And it was originally gave me plan for like video animation, a very narrow market, like those v- VHS tapes you see in the video store. That's what they were planning to do. And they were all surprised when it was treated as a, like a film and sent to film festivals around the world and had so much garnered um, reaction off of this, like just positive reaction mm-hmm. to the movie. And the thing is, psychological horror was not mainstream in Japan at the time. So oh, there was no really? precedent to like to make this movie so it normally would have been rejected oh. as a film but they made it and it was like whoa they, they set something up yeah i can imagine that's awesome so when uh satoshi Kon decided to become like the director he said he couldn't resist the allure of directing for the first time and he also wanted to do it because the original author allowed him to change the story as much as he wanted to as long as he had the three basic things in mind to make the film work the main character is the b-grade idol she has a rabid fan slash stalker, and it's a horror film. As long as he kept those three main things, he could like change up as much as he wanted. And that's what we got in this film. So when they were trying to advertise this movie, he was unknown. He was like a first-time director. They didn't know him. So they got the guy who made Akira, which is like from 10 years beforehand. Yes. They were able to say like, oh, from a disciple of the director of Akira. Even though nice. he never worked, they never interacted before. They just used it for advertising. <laughs> yeah. Oh, marketing. So the distributor for the movie, they were able to get permission from Roger Corman and Irvin Kirshner to use their comments in recommending the film free of charge worldwide. They were able to get that for free. And that helped them with the popularity of the film. My gosh. That's the kind of movie that I think every couple of years I will rewatch to see what else I learned. It's kind of like Fight Club. Where I feel like every time I watch it, I will learn something new that I didn't see before. But I can't watch it all the time. Yeah. Because I would like to still be happy <laughs> with life. <laughs> I'm going to go off on a tangent again. Tangent alert, I guess. With Fight Club. I thought mm-hmm. it was obvious, the commentary they were making. But mm-hmm. apparently not. Apparently oh. not. 
Because um, yeah. you see a lot of men these days using the same talking points from that movie, even mm-hmm. though the guy was making fun of those type of guys. Yes. Yes. The <sighs> the level of irony and catharsis, I feel like, has, depending on who you're talking to, can go over certain people's heads. Because it like... is a satire of this, yeah. And then other people take it at face value, and they're like, N- N- no, <laughs> that's, that's uh, not the point. Oh, man. It's like this one dude I saw on Twitter. <laughs> um, not related, but I guess somewhat related. It's based on a comment he made. He was basically saying, like, the leader of Ukraine should have worn at least a suit during these Zoom meetings. And people are like, can you read the room? That man is at war. He doesn't have time to like put on a suit and he can't go yeah. to like a men's warehouse cause it's all gunned down, missile down. And he made uh, like another, com- another comment to that thread. Like people are telling me to read the room, but I think the, the room is biased. I'm like, people told you to read the room and your response is, <laughs> I think the room is biased. <laughs> I wish the listeners could see the reaction you made. I'm like, I'd be a perfect reaction to YouTuber. Wait, yeah, let me ask that, you this: do you, th- there do you think you go. I'll be a, be a reactor? Do you think? Do you think I'll be a good reaction YouTuber? You you could be a reactor at commentary, make faces. That's about it. Be completely stoic. Like either way works. Let me try like the thumbnail. Oh gosh, there you go. Yeah, that's it. You got the thumbnails down. <laughs> Just pray that the algorithm gods uh, bless you with views. That's really yeah, it. Definitely. There you go. I got, I, yeah, I got try a it Latino, Latino filmmaker watches there you Rush go. Hour for That's the first it. time. Literally. Watches Encanto and for the first time. That's exactly it. That's what I did. I just put Latina <laughs> actress, watches Encanto, boom, views. 300,000. How much there is that at right now? 411,000. Look at you. <laughs> okay. Okay. I am, I am very proud and... None of those four hundred thousand views were monetized. So hey, <laughs> that sounded like sarcasm. I'm not very good at detecting yes, sarcasm. It <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it's awful. No, I'm very, I'm very gracious for the the kind of gigantic boost that that video did. However, it does stink that the biggest video I have has earned me no money at all because <laughs> if i think about it too long it could make me sad <laughs> because it would have been so much money but disney decided to give me copyrights so that's the only thing if you want to be a reactor be ready to have to suffer through copyright and that's yeah. that's a real pain but Definitely. yeah try it out i mean listeners if y'all want to see jason's face <laughs> like I mean, y'all let him know. It's going to be in 480p because I'm not getting HD. If you want to see this face, you got to see it in person. But don't don't find me. Don't try to find me. No, no. Come on. Watch Perfect Blue and realize we do not need more of the memanias in the world. (laughs) Do not be him. If you identify with him, there is a problem. I want to talk a little bit about the influence in the West. This film served as the influence for Black Swan, uh, directed by Darren Aronofsky. And Darren Aronofsky is a huge fan of Satoshi Kon. He even bought the rights for, uh, I believe it was, he bought the rights for Perfect mm-hmm. Blue to like, distribute it in North America or other places. Nice. And he even used cool. the scene where she's in the bathtub screaming into water. He used that scene for a Requiem for a Dream. And he's been yeah. accused of like copying some certain uh, moments in that film and using it mm-hmm. as shots for his other films. 
And he's like, yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about. I have, I, I had no idea that was in mind, whatever. That's fine. So he's Tarantino. I mean, they just recycle from all movies ever made. It's not yeah. anything new. They're stealing. Like, it's Tarantino says it best. He's like, the thing is, a lot of great artists think they like copy, but no, great artists steal. You just steal it. And that's what they do. That's it. Just don't plagiarize. Like, I, I will say, I do think there's a difference between taking a shot from a film, putting it in the context of your own film, which is like film recycling, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then plagiarizing, essentially taking somebody else's work and passing it off as your own. Which Definitely. happens so much at this point. It's just the films are so damn old, no one realizes it's plagiarism. Unless it's like a 60, 70-year-old person being like, no, I've seen this movie. And then they're like, I saw this movie back in the 60s. And they're like, no, nah, Grandpa, you, no, you didn't. This is made in 2020. This yeah, is and brand like, new. Yeah, and they're like, no, I saw this. But so Aronofsky got the rights to distribute it, which is insane. I'm sorry, that was wrong. He bought the remake oh, okay. rights to Perfect Blue. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, for, for like the frame for frame scene in Requiem for a Dream. Nice. So I mean, yeah. that's 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 um some genuine love for the material. For me, it's just always a thing of give credit where credit is due. Because, I mean, I can understand not everyone's going to take the time or care to, like, educate themselves about the world of film. But at least if you're the person making it, acknowledge that you're stealing or acknowledge the inspirations you had. Because mm -hmm. if you come in here being all like, oh, this was our idea and it's never been done before, I'm like, come on. It's like we've had stories now for almost since the beginning of time. It's like, I promise you what you're telling now is just a new form of telling a story we've seen before. The mediums at which we use to tell these stories is what's changed. So that concludes our conversation today. Thank you so much, Clarice, for being here. I really appreciate you coming on here with your articul... And I don't want to make it sound like I'm being uh, insensitive about this or like ingenuine but i love your articulation like it, it was like thank you a breath of, breath of fresh air you know like I, i'm oh, not like this so, it, perfect contrast you know i'm surface your depth you know thank you <laughs> I, I really appreciate that i'm glad and i hope that in the exchange in the conversation it was able to get you even more because i think you really had a lot of really good points too of things that you thought of that kind of went a little bit deeper than just the surface. So I hope that you saw that at least with the conversation yeah. too, because I had a lot of fun. Thank you. I had a lot of fun too. So I want to yeah, ask you, great. were the movies a hit or a miss with you? Oof. Okay. Perfect Blue is a complete hit and Revolutionary Road is like a barely passive hit. It's mm. like, it could have been a miss, but it hit because where it needed to hit, it hit. If that makes sense. But, but Perfect Blue is the knockout. Like, that is most definitely a hit. If I am talking to friends about fucked up movies, that's on the list. And they all need to go watch it. Alone. <laughs> I would say the same thing. except So, Perfect Blue, immediate mm. hit. As soon Absolutely. as I saw... As soon as it started to fuck me up, I was like, oh, I, I need this shit Absolutely. right into my veins. Right it. into my exactly. veins. It was yes. a hit. It was a hit for me. Yes. Revolutionary Road unfortunately was a miss for me yeah it, i mm. i think you can kind of tell like i didn't go into as much detail mm -hmm. about this movie because i didn't really care for this movie it's sort of a pattern with this podcast if i didn't really care about it i didn't talk too much about it so as as far as like the, that movie great production great actors it just didn't land with me and also it doesn't help that mm -hmm. it's not my type of movie 
you know? Yeah. I like fun stuff. I, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> fun I realized... stuff? <laughs> Perfect blue is fun? It's a, tr- it's a, di- it's a fucked up type of fun. <laughs> okay. Revolutionary Road, when I watched it, I kept thinking about Before Midnight, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. Because I just watched that for like another episode of this. It's like about another couple that are fighting. Mm-hmm. Before mm-hmm. Midnight had a better ending gotcha. than Revolutionary Road. At the time when I saw Before Midnight, I'm like, ooh, I'm not sure about the relationship is still going to happen. And then when I saw Revolutionary Road, I'm like, ooh, at least Jesse and Selene are still alive <laughs> together. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So, it, yeah, for one, it just isn't my type of movie. I'm mm-hmm. not a particular fan of period dramas. Also, it's very dramatic. And yeah. That, that's I guess <laughs> you're like it's I, very I, dramatic. I, already, <laughs> I had some biases coming into this movie. Gotcha. So because like okay. when you recommend when you said you want to watch this, I was like, <sighs> okay. Oh no! <laughs> At least you held off until now, and now I'm yeah. seeing why. It's like that's all right. It's so, it's not rubbing salt on the wound. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was like um. Yeah, yeah. I, I realized I need to explore, expand my horizons, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I never really considered watching, like, something like Bef- the Before Trilogy until my friend recommend he, my friend, he saw it last year. He said he really liked it. And I trust his opinion on movies, right? Nice. And then yeah, yeah. When Sophia, my guest for the first episode this season, she said she wanted to watch it. I'm like, you know what? Let's just watch the whole trilogy. So Nice. Awesome. So that's just a very long answer for me to say Perfect Blue was a huge hit. Revolutionary Road was a miss. So, nice. Clarice, where can we find you on social media? Yes. So, on social media, the best places to find me are my YouTube channel, which is my name, Clarice, C-L-A-R-I-S-S. It is just that. You can find me. You don't know what my face looks like, so you can click on videos. I have, most likely you'll see my Encanto video, which was a movie reaction to it. I am a Hispanic actress, and I watch this Spanish movie. I get Spanish in it. It's entertaining and fun, and now I'm able to make money off of it. So if you would like to support me, I would really appreciate it. But you can find me on YouTube. And if you are interested in occasional posts on the gram, I have an Instagram. It's callme underscore Clarice. That's about it. I rarely ever post, but if I post, it's usually announcements about the YouTube channel. I also have a Patreon. Patreon is patreon.com slash callmeclarice. And that you can get full length discussions if you enjoyed this podcast and kind of hear my thoughts with Jason and things like that and like more analytical discussions and things about film. I have all of that on my Patreon, much longer discussions, talk about the art of filmmaking and acting and personal stories too. So if any of that sounds like fun and you thought it was cool, come out and support. That's all for today, folks. You've been listening to the Hit List Podcast. My name is Jason and until next time, cross off a new film from your list. Thank you for listening to the Hitlist Podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider giving us five stars and leaving a review. It really does help. You can also follow us on Facebook at The Hitlist Podcast and Instagram at the underscore hitlist underscore podcast. 